Welcome to our special ISO episode of Your Shout, our chat with Queenslanders who have an amazing story to tell. I'm Deb Eccleston, and today I'm talking with Professor Ian Fraser, who many would know as the co-creator of the HPV vaccine that has, and continues to, save lives across the globe. Now, Professor Fraser and his team of researchers at the University of Queensland have turned their attention to the coronavirus COVID-19, which is wreaking havoc worldwide as we speak. Thank you for joining us, Ian. In all your years, did you ever think we'd find ourselves in the position we're in today? To be quite honest, yes, although maybe not with this particular virus, because through my career, we've had epidemics of virus at about 10-year intervals. Some have just been confined to one part of the globe, some have gone global, but viruses are smart and they generally tend to crop up when we least expect them and cause problems that we least expect. Can you tell me what is different about this virus as opposed to the common cold or flu? Not that much in one sense, and the the virus has spread rapidly through the community. I guess the reason that we're so concerned about the coronavirus problem that we have at the moment is because most of the people who get it are not obviously infected, and 1% of the people who get it die as a result of the infection. So we don't know where it is easily, and it causes a threat to us that we don't fully understand. Australia seems to have a grip on the situation. Do you feel that we're leading the charge in controlling this outbreak and that we've learned from the examples set by other countries? I think we've been very fortunate in Australia in that we were given the right advice at the right time and surprisingly enough, we all followed it. And the net result of that is that we've managed to control this first phase of the epidemic relatively effectively in this country through social distancing and had a very limited number of patients who have become seriously ill, most of whom have come from overseas and most of whom have caught it while travelling. How are you yourself coping with the quarantine situation? We're actually having this conversation, both of us in completely different locations, which is a testament to technology, but how are you dealing with it? Well, for the work that I'm doing at the moment, Effort uh, Life has lived on video conference. We have got used to the idea now that meetings can be held with two people or 200 people and work quite effectively by video conference. It's still stressful, I think, for people. They'd, I mean, the most difficult thing to do is to give a talk to a group of 200 people where you get no feedback at all. You're just talking to a computer screen and you kind of hope there are people at the other end that are listening, <laughs> but you've no way of knowing. How do you even begin to develop a vaccine for something like this? The methods for developing vaccines are fairly well standardised now, and we're very fortunate that we've got some new ones up our sleeves in addition to the traditional ones. The traditional virus vaccines were either made by growing up the virus, killing it, and using the killed virus as the vaccine, or by growing up the virus, making it weak in some way, attenuating it. Uh, so that it couldn't cause disease, and then giving it as a live virus, which mimicked the real thing but didn't cause the disease. And those technologies are well established. And then more recently, we've had genetic engineering, of course, and the papillomavirus vaccine that I was involved in developing with was probably one of the first that was built using genetic engineering. This gives us a lot more flexibility about what we use in a vaccine and probably makes it more easier to make a safe vaccine because we can just pick the bits of the virus that are seen by our immune system as important and forget about all the bits that cause disease. 
how we d- are developing our vaccine, and by we I mean you, is that different to how they're doing it in the US and China, who are already, according to news, beginning human trials of their vaccines? How, how do they differ? Look, the University of Queensland is developing a vaccine based on a new technology, which is molecular in basis. It's called molecular clamping, and it basically is using genetic engineering to assemble a protein which can be a copy of one bit of the virus. This is a a relatively new technology, and I must confess I have nothing to do with that at all. I just watch astonished from outside (laughs) about what they're capable of doing. The more conventional techniques are quicker, by and large, but the reality is that the slow bit of the process is not coming up with the technology it's testing it and proving it's safe and effective. And that is going to be the holdup for vaccines, whichever technology we use to make them. Particularly for coronavirus, that's a problem because we know that vaccines that have been developed against other nasty coronaviruses in the past have sometimes made the disease worse, not better. We really want to be very sure that any vaccine we develop for COVID-19 is not going to make the situation more serious. The Animal studies with previous coronavirus vaccines show that animals immunised and then exposed to the virus sometimes became more sick than the ones that just got the virus naturally. So we don't want to have that happening in humans. Does it concern you then, based on what you've just said, that these trials are sort of being rushed out? Is there a risk associated with that? Well, clearly there is. There's a risk with not getting a vaccine as well, of course, and that's the problem. We have to balance the risks. But I would be very confident that the vaccines that end up going into humans will have been well tested in animals for safety first, including safety when challenged with the real virus, so that we can be very confident that anything that gets released for use, even for trials in humans, will already have been shown to be safe in animals. If the US develops a vaccine and China develops a vaccine and Australia develops a vaccine. Do we have three different vaccines then or can one develop a vaccine and share it with the other countries? How does it all work? Well, until we know which which technology gives the best answer, we'll continue to develop all these vaccines in parallel. And at the moment, there are over 100 vaccines and trials of one sort or another, none of which have, well, only six, I think, have now got into humans. Uh, but the animal studies are going on to see whether we get the right sort of immune response and then to see if that immune response protects against real infection. Once we've got through that bit, and that will take months to do, then we have to go into humans and test to see for safety. And out of all of that, maybe comes three or four different vaccines. We've developed different sorts of vaccines against other infections in the past. Usually one will turn out to be superior, and that becomes the one that we then go on to use the most. But uh, there are also vaccines that we can give to people who, for example, don't have a normal immune system. Uh, If it's been damaged, we wouldn't want to give them a live virus vaccine because it might have been rendered harmless for you and me, but with their impaired immune system, it might cause them problems. So for them, we might make a killed virus vaccine, which was quite different in basis from the ones that we would use routinely around the world. At the end of the day, the things that really matter, how quick can we make it and how expensive is it going to be to make it in large amounts? Because the raw ingredients of a vaccine are generally not very expensive. They cost cents per dose. But some vaccines, including the papillomavirus vaccine, because it's a complex vaccine, the cost is dollars per dose. And we don't really want to come up with a vaccine we're going to have to use worldwide, which is going to cost dollars per dose, because that means that two thirds of the world will not be able to afford it. 
In terms of time and money, do you have answers to those questions yet that you just asked, like, you know, the cost of developing a vaccine and the time that it's going to take? cost of developing the vaccine will sort of disappear. It's, it's relatively trivial in comparison with the cost of making it globally and distributing it globally. So even investing $10, $20 million in developing a potential vaccine at the moment, even if that's done 100 times worldwide, that will still be trivial in comparison mm. to the cost of getting the vaccine out there. The time factor, well, we can't rush it too much. And we're just going to have to accept that it's going to take a bit of time to get it out there because scaling up from making a test tube full to making swimming pools full to vaccinate the world is a huge job. And it's not automatic. Things that you can easily do in the lab in small quantities become incredibly difficult when you're trying to make thousands of litres of the stuff, make it under controlled conditions. It's the difference between home brewing and making enough beer to feed Australia. Now, this isn't your first rodeo. You've certainly made a name for yourself as a co-creator of the HPV vaccine. Can you tell me that story? It's incredible. Well, we didn't set out, Jew and I, to make a vaccine against papillomavirus. We were both interested in the same virus. He was a virologist and was an immunologist, and we knew that this was a virus that caused cancer, and we were trying to understand better first of all, how the virus caused cancer, and secondly, whether we could stop the virus causing cancer. But to do that, we actually had to build the virus because we couldn't grow it in the lab. And this that was the big challenge for papillomavirus research, was that the, nobody had been able to grow papillomaviruses in the lab. For most other viruses, growing it in the lab is actually not that hard. Indeed, sometimes it's difficult to stop them growing when you don't want them to. For this particular virus, it just refused to grow in the lab. So we had to use genetic engineering technology to build the virus. What we wanted to do was to build an infectious virus so that we could infect cells in the lab. We actually had to build the shell of the virus first. Viruses basically have a coat, and inside the coat is the genetic information that causes the problem. The coat itself is harmless. It's just a delivery system. and The genetic information is the problem that causes the illness. We set out, first of all, to build the coat of the virus. And somewhat to our surprise, the coat was made of... 360 copies of the same thing. So basically, it was just a set of building blocks put together. And we made one of the building blocks. We made a system that would make one of the building blocks. And then we found that if we did that in the right way, those building blocks self-assembled to make the whole coat. And that was a real surprise for us. We thought that they wouldn't assemble on their own, that we'd have to make them assemble. But because they assembled themselves, that then became potentially a vaccine. So when we saw that happening for the first time, we said, hang on a tick, not only have we got the shell of the virus, but we might now have a vaccine to prevent the infection because our immune system doesn't see the individual building blocks. It sees the whole thing. It sees the shape, if you like. And as soon as we saw that we got the shape right, we thought, okay, this could be a vaccine. And we tested it in animals and showed that, yes, we got antibodies in the animals, which bound to the shape of the virus. And then we just, to be quite blunt, passed it on to the commercial companies. We passed it on to CSL to develop further because that is something that companies do extremely well and lab scientists do very badly. It's Gardasil? There's Gardasil and Cerverix, and now there's a company in China that's making one as well. Uh, They're all made the same way. They use the same technology that we came up with, this virus-like particle, which uh, has become the basis of a 
a number of other vaccines now. It might even become the basis of the coronavirus vaccine in due course. It's a genetic engineering technique, and it's basically a way of building something that looks like the virus but isn't infectious. Just some of the stats, four out of five people have had at least one type of HPV at some time in their lives. It infects both men and women. And for women, it's where it can lead to cervical cancer. That's correct. Since the advent of the vaccines, there's been a 77% reduction in HPV types responsible for almost 75% of cervical cancer. That's incredible. Well, look, I'm glad that we were had the chance to be part of it. Uh, Sometimes you forget about that because you realise that it's all the work that went before what you did. I mean, we took a technology and applied it to the virus. If the technology had not been invented, we couldn't have done that. And we were lucky we were in the right place at the right time to come up with that particular technology. But we were also driven by the fact that this was causing 300,000 deaths from cervical cancer every year globally and that it was an important problem to solve. Now, as people would have picked up from your accent, you're not <laughs> you didn't uh, you're not a born and bred Australian. You've been here for a long time, but you actually started out in in Scotland. Can you take us back to where you started out and how you came to follow a career in science? Yes, look, I, I was born in Glasgow in Scotland. Didn't last very long there. My parents moved to Edinburgh when I was a small child. And my father worked as a doctor and a laboratory scientist in the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh, one of the big hospitals there. It's now been converted into luxury town apartments, the hospital. Uh, they knocked down all the bad bits and kept the, the ancient bits, which looked rather nice. But at any rate, I, I uh, was brought up in Edinburgh and then Aberdeen, where my father moved to as a professor of uh, biochemistry. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to study medicine. In fact, I really wanted to study astrophysics. I talked with a few astrophysicists and realised there wasn't much of a career path for astrophysicists. Uh, I was guided by by the father of my German pen friend's girlfriend into going into medicine. I met him in Germany and he was a medical doctor who did research and he said, look, you know, my astrophysics is wonderful, but you'll never get there. <laughs> it's all out there and you'll never see it. I tried, tried doing something more interesting at home, basically, and I decided I would study medicine, which I think pleased my parents because I probably was rebelling against their desire that I study medicine by thinking I would do astrophysics. So I studied medicine and uh, I ended up working as a kidney doctor in Scotland it was always sure that I wanted to do research. I wasn't just quite sure what. While I was a renal physician, or at least a trainee renal physician in Edinburgh, there was an epidemic of virus, hepatitis B virus, went through the staff of the renal dialysis unit there. And I realised that virus infections were a significant problem, which we hadn't really been taught as an undergraduate about. I mean, nobody taught you about epidemiology, although interestingly, I had been taught about cervical cancer because one of the famous epidemiologists in the field of cervical cancer happened to be in Edinburgh University and happened to be the teacher of the public health course there, uh, Elizabeth McGregor. And she inspired me also to think a little bit about epidemiology, public health, that led to a skiing project where I was a keen skier as a kid. I decided that since I had to do a public health project, I would do it on skiing injuries because that oh, allowed no. me to go to the ski slopes every, every weekend <laughs> for a whole uh, skiing season. 
to find out what, what was causing the injuries. But at any rate, that gave me also a background in cervical cancer that I wouldn't otherwise have had. But I decided that I needed to study immunology, the science of uh, fighting infection, if you like, and Edinburgh wasn't the place to do it. So having been as an undergraduate student in Australia for a couple of months as a an elective, just a holiday, if you like, but to learn a little bit about another part of the world, I decided that I would go back to Australia to become an immunologist. And uh, there I was fortunate enough to have a very good mentor, Professor Ian Mackay, who passed away recently. He introduced me to the director of the Cancer Research Institute, Professor Harold Surhausen, who had only just at that time found out that papillomavirus was responsible for cervical cancer. And so Harold Zerhausen said, look, forget liver disease, <laughs> come and work on papillomavirus. Yeah. And uh, I decided I would take that to heart and went back to Australia and started a project looking for evidence that papillomavirus might cause other cancers besides cervical cancer and found that it was uh, with a colleague in Melbourne that it was responsible for also for some other genital cancers. And that, when I came to move to Brisbane, because I, my then boss had retired and I needed to find a new job, I decided I would take that interest with me and concentrate on understanding how papillomavirus caused cancer, but more importantly, how the body fought off papillomavirus. And that led to the vaccine. So how long have you been in Australia? I came here as an undergraduate student in 1975 and came back here to settle in 1981. When I came to Australia, I brought my wife, had been my girlfriend prior to that, and we had our first child on the way. We found that Australia was a very friendly place and it was a good place to bring up kids. Moving to Queensland, that was reinforced, but more importantly, when I first came to Queensland, there were not too much things going on in the way of biomedical research here. There was lots of people who wanted to support biomedical research, but not many people doing it. So it was quite easy to get funding initially when I started here for charitable grants from the Cancer Council Queensland and other organisations to get my research off the ground. That enabled us to make quick progress in the work that we were doing. Of course, now Australia is even the can the research is evenly spread across the whole country. Queensland is one of the leading states now, but in those days it wasn't. And I think that that was a great help simply because it gave me the opportunity, first of all, to build a team and eventually to build an institute uh, to help uh, pursue biomedical research. The institute, uh, TRI, what other work has that been, you know, leading the charge on? There's a whole team of people working on better research in how to control cancer once you get it using the immune system. It's clearly one of the th one of the major breakthroughs of the 21st century is that we can now use drugs to attack cancer, which are using the immune system to attack cancer rather than toxic drugs, chemotherapy. It's, I mean, it's not the complete solution to cancer, at least not yet, but it's complementary to the other things that we're doing. It's made a huge difference for some cancers, which were previously uncurable, like uh, disseminated melanoma, that we can now cure 20% of these people with a drug which turns your immune system on to fight the cancer. There are over 600 scientists and doctors working there to try and solve the practical problems in health that we don't have solutions to at the moment. What has your focus looked like before and after COVID-19? Well, we're still focused on papillomavirus mostly and cervical cancer because we know that cervical cancer globally is still a big problem. 
and the precancer that cause that goes on to come become the cancer is not something that's easy to treat in the developing world. So we're trying to develop a vaccine that could be given to people who are already infected with papillomavirus to help cure the problems they've got. It's a tougher problem than the vaccine to prevent the infection, but it'll be 50 years before the, the virus is wiped out across the planet through pre the preventative vaccine. And that's 50 years of 300,000 deaths a year from cervical cancer that we really need to do something about. So that's the focus of my own research, lab's research group. But we're also interested in skin cancer. We would have to be in Queensland because Queensland is the skin cancer capital of the world, as I keep getting reminded by my colleagues. And what we're trying to do is to find out what, besides sunlight, increases our risk of getting skin cancer. Well, there are a lot of people who go out in the sun and get sun-damaged skin, but don't go on to get cancer. And then there's a small group of people who go on to get very serious cancers in their skin. And we know that the body's defence against infection are important for that, because if you take those defences away, for example, if somebody's had a kidney transplant, they're much more likely to get skin cancer because they've been given all these drugs to damp their immune system down so that the transplant survives, and then they have this huge risk of getting skin cancer. So that says that normally our immune system is pretty good at fighting skin cancer, and we just need to understand how it does and why that sometimes fails. And we've become very interested in the bacteria that grow on the surface of our skin because it turns out that they change when we've got sun-damaged skin. I mean you probably think that you, your skin is nice and clean, but actually it's crawling with bacteria oh. all the time. <laughs> uh, but they're there for a good purpose. They keep your skin healthy. Without them, your skin would not be as healthy as it is. But when the skin gets sun damaged, the bacteria change, and they change from being healthy bacteria to ones which we now recognise are potentially toxic to the skin. They do two things. They create inflammation in your skin, and they damp down your defences against infection. And that might be relevant to skin cancer. We don't yet know whether it is. But if it were, it would mean that perhaps we could reduce the risk of skin cancer by just changing the bacteria on the surface of your skin. That's what we're studying, and we're doing it in the lab. But we're also doing it in the collaboration with some of the vets in Queensland and cats and dogs, because they get skin cancer too. And uh, so we're interested in finding out if they have the same changes in their bacteria on their skin as we have on ours, because we can then test in the cats and dogs whether changing the bacteria will reduce their risk of skin cancer. And that will then allow us to do the same in humans. Have you found it challenging throughout your career on a couple of fronts? You know, there's a lot of talk about animal testing in labs with regard to scientific discoveries. On the other side of that, vaccines are dangerous. How have you regarded those views over the course of your career? You've got to understand how the rest of the world sees what you do, because at the end of the day, you as a taxpayer are paying for it. And without that funding, we can't do any research. So yes, look, we're very responsive to the community. We have to be. We consult with the community before we do research. We consult during the time that we're doing the research, and we consult after we've done the research. We're aware that some people feel uncomfortable about animals being used in research. We do try to point out that it's probably better to find out in an animal than in a human that there's a problem with some of the work that we're doing. 
uh, it's safer in the long run for humans if we test in animals first. But we certainly don't use animals unless they're necessary for the research. If there's a way of doing without the animals, there are 20 good reasons why we would prefer to do without the animals, not least of which is the cost, because working with animals is expensive. For the anti-vaccine lobby, well, there's a very small percentage of the community who, for good reason, believe that we shouldn't be vaccinated. And uh, I'm not going to be able to change their minds. And I don't try. I hope they don't try and change mine too often, but I let them think what they like. But I object when they then go out and tell other people who are perhaps not so well able to judge the relative risks that they shouldn't get their kids vaccinated. I, I know many of our listeners will be will be wondering, you know, how long is this going to take? When is the end in sight? Do you have any insights around that? Well, I wish I did. I mean, crystal balls are fairly scarce these days and very expensive, and they're usually faulty anyway. <laughs> I think that realistically we have to accept that this is a new virus that is going to run its course through the community over the course of the next couple of years, probably without the intervention of a vaccine because it probably won't be ready in time, and that we're going to have to moderate the spread of the infection through the community so we don't get the health system overloaded. But on the other hand, we're probably going to have to ensure one way or another that we all get exposed to the virus because that will build up herd immunity and prevent there being an epidemic again in the future. The risk at the moment is that we've done extremely well up till date and effectively we've got rid of the virus from within Australia. There are still one or two new cases occurring every day, but it's only one or two. And within the next month, it would probably be, well, probably be that we've got no more new cases happening and that since the infection only lasts a couple of weeks, will basically have cleared the virus out of the country. People over the age of 60, like me, might choose to keep our distance from young people uh, and not take the risk of catching the infection. But the community has to get back to being a normal community. We have to be able to go to the pub, to go to work, to then send our kids to school. And we can't really imagine that we're going to quarantine ourselves off from the rest of the world. So I suspect that over the next couple of years, the virus will be allowed to spread through the community. The 1% of people who will get seriously ill with the virus will get seriously ill, and the 0.1% of people who will die will die. Um, that's not a nice way of looking at it, but it's probably the only practical one. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I understand, as always, you're, you're a busy man, but probably more so now than ever. So we certainly really appreciate you taking the time to talk, talk to us about what is going on at the moment. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Your Shout, brought to you by Queensland's largest club, RACQ. To hear more, subscribe, or for more great content like this, go to racq.com forward slash living. Listener.